Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from I Could Never Believe in a God Who, our series in which we examine and respond to serious objections to Christianity. Here is Pastor Nick. What if it actually takes more faith to not believe in God than it does to believe in God? So how do we explain the fine-tuning of the universe apart from belief in God? Well, attempts have been made. So for, I've mentioned this name a couple times during this series, Manny Richard Dawkins, right? He's an he's a, uh, evangelical atheist, which means that not only is he an atheist, but he wants you to be an atheist, right? And so he writes books about it. Well, Richard Dawkins, he says, well, how do we explain the fine-tuning of the universe? Well, he says, here's how I explain it. He calls it the multiverse theory. Multiverse theory, which means that he believes there are trillions of parallel universes that exist. And in each of those parallel universes, one of the possible, the many possible scenarios which exist that could have happened has happened in one of those parallel universes. And we just happened to score the jackpot, right? We just got really lucky. And we happened to be in the universe where everything worked out perfectly. Now, again, I just want to point out, Parallel universes, right? Like that's where we're at. That's how we're trying to explain it without God. That is going far beyond the realm of science. There is zero evidence for this that can be observed or measured. This is not science, guys. This is faith. This is metaphysics. And again, I'm going to ask the question, what if it takes more faith to not believe in God than it does to believe in God? I believe that's the case. Let's look at another one, which is the evidence from morality, did you know this? That Did you know that among primates, right? So monkeys, uh, gorillas, chimpanzees. Among primates, male primates regularly commit sexual assault against female primates. Like it's just, it's something they do every day, right? It's all the time. Now, this is something that scientists have observed. It's well documented that male monkeys and gorillas regularly intimidate, harass, and rape female monkeys and gorillas. And what scientists argue is that this behavior is natural and in a way, from a scientific perspective, it is advantageous for the gene pool for this to happen. And here's why, because the stronger, more aggressive males will pass on their genes rather than the weak and passive males. So you end up with a stronger gene pool. Everybody benefits from it, I guess you could say. And so here's the question. When it comes to human beings, why is it that people unanimously believe that rape and sexual assault are wrong? Like if you were to take a poll in every culture in the world, people would say, yeah, that's definitely wrong. I mean, if it's natural, if there's a scientific benefit to it, if it's advantageous from a genetic perspective, then why do we believe that it's wrong morally for one person to do that to another person? See, science, including actually psychology, they can describe why things are the way they are. Science and psychology, sociology, these things can explain why people do the things that they do. But what these studies, these sciences cannot do is that they cannot tell us how people ought to behave, why certain things should be a certain way and not another way. Rebecca McLaughlin puts it like this. 
She's from Oxford University. She says this, science can explain why a man might have the drive to commit sexual assault, but it cannot tell us why he would be wrong to succumb to that drive. Sociology can tell us that certain behaviors impact a community, but in order to say that some behaviors are wrong, we need a narrative about human identity that goes beyond what science and sociology can tell us. See, the fact that every human being has a conscience, a sense of right and wrong. Now, people may differ on what they believe are right and wrong, but everybody believes that there are certain things that are right and wrong. You know, some of the time, sometimes you'll hear people say, we live in a society that is amoral or a society that is pluralistic or let's say that people believe that moral, morality is relative. I would argue with that and I'd say, no, I think that people today have a very highly tuned sense of morality. And you know how that's true? How many of you have ever scrolled social media and you've seen someone on there fighting for some cause, right? A social justice warrior. They're fighting for a cause, whatever that cause may be. They, they're going out, they're marching in the street, they're arguing for some, they're fighting for something. This period we live in in time has been called the age of outrage, which means anytime you turn on the radio, TV, internet, people are upset about something. Now, I'm not here to tell you who's right or who's wrong. What I am here to tell you this, the fact that people are outraged points to morality. They believe that something is wrong, something is right, and they wanna fight for what's right and they wanna fight against what's wrong. They might disagree on what those things are, but everybody believes that there's right and there's wrong. In other words, everyone has a sense of morality and morality points to something that is not uh, explained by evolutionary science or even by sociology or by psychology. It points to something which is outside of us. It points to the fact that we were created by a personal God. Steven Pinker is an atheist writer. And Steven Pinker, I appreciate him in this sense. He, I believe that he has the honesty to say what is obvious. And that's this. He says this. The truth is, if you believe that human beings are just the result of a series of natural processes, evolution and experience then no one should ever be held accountable for anything they do because they're only doing what they were programmed to do by nature. In other words, if someone commits a crime, well, we shouldn't hold them accountable because they couldn't have done otherwise. Their actions are really just the inevitable outworking of their programming. And yet nobody believes that, right? None of us would agree with that. We all believe that people are responsible for their actions. We believe that people should be held accountable when they do things that are wrong. We teach our kids that just because they feel like doing something doesn't mean they should necessarily do that thing. You might feel like hurting someone, but you shouldn't, right? You might feel like shaking a baby when you're frustrated, but you should not do that. You might sometimes not feel like doing something that is right, but you should still do it even if you don't feel that way. You see, in other words, no matter how you are inclined, there are some feelings which you should go with and some feelings which you should not go with. And the point is this, we all believe there is a moral law and a moral law points to something outside of us. It points to a moral law giver. By the way, this applies to other areas as well. It applies to beauty. Why is it that you long for beauty? Why is it that certain sounds sound good to you and other sounds don't sound good to you? There's no evolutionary advantage to beauty and art. Do you realize that? There's no evolutionary advantage to these things. I love the mountains. I find them beautiful. In fact, there are a few mountains that I particularly love. They're, you know, my favorites to look at and enjoy. But if I really think about it, you know, mountains are really just big piles of dirt, right? Just big piles of dirt with rocks on top, 
right? So why is it that I find some piles of dirt more attractive than other piles of dirt? Or how about poetry or cinema or art? There are words which put in a certain order with a certain intonation can cause you to have butterflies in your stomach. They can cause you to cry. Why? Why is it that some things we find beautiful, uh, is that actually just completely meaningless? It's just our brains tricking us? What about love? Is love just a chemical reaction which helps us evolutionary-wise and nothing more? Or do those feelings we have actually point to something real that actually exists? Is love real? All of these things, morality, beauty, love, they point to something which is outside of us, which exists and is true. And when we're experiencing something that resonates with us, you all know that feeling, with that reality which is outside of us, there's something within us that says, yes, that's it. That's what I've been looking for. That's what I've been longing for. That's what I was created for. That is why I exist. That is the goal of my existence is to get more of that. See, people who deny the existence of God, they have a really hard time explaining morality and beauty and love. As Christians, right, the Bible tells us that, that very clearly, that it's because we were created by God and our hearts long for beauty and perfection and love and truth because that is who God is. And that is what heaven will be, guys, by the way. It's being united with God. And, and something deep inside of us knows that and longs for it and longs to get glimpses of it and tastes of it wherever we can. Timothy Keller says this. He says, I have a radical thesis. I think people in our culture know unavoidably that there is a God. They are just repressing what they know. Interesting theory, right? But do you know that that idea isn't unique to Timothy Keller? You know where he got that idea? He got that straight out of the Bible. See, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says this. Some people naturally obey the law's commands, even though they don't have the law. This proves that the conscience is like a law written in the human heart. And it shows whether we are forgiven or condemned. Are you looking for a resource to help you answer some of the most difficult questions about God in the Bible? Then we've got good news for you. Pastor Nick has written a book called The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity. In this book, Pastor Nick deals directly with some of the biggest questions people struggle with, such as how a loving God can allow innocent people to suffer, whether God condoned genocide in the Old Testament, or whether the Bible encourages the suppression of women and minorities. Does the Bible really say that some kinds of love are wrong? And is there any actual proof that God exists or that the Bible is trustworthy? Pastor Nick addresses these topics and more in this book, which is a great resource for anyone who wrestles with doubts or has concerns about these topics. And it is a great resource for those who want to help others who have questions about these topics. So to purchase this book, search for The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Christianity, wherever books are sold or visit nickkady.org. To celebrate the release of this book, we are offering a free copy of the book as our gift to any of our listeners who make a donation of any amount to support Be Set Free Radio at besetfreeradio.com. And now, back to today's message. In Romans chapter 1, we're told this, for what can be known about God is plainly seen by all people because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. 
Therefore, he goes on to say, people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Later on in this chapter, he says, people refuse to acknowledge him as God. And, or give thanks to him, he says, because they, and they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. What it's saying is that every rational person intuitively knows that there is a God. Many people, however, are suppressing or repressing that knowledge. Now, maybe you ask the question, why would someone repress the knowledge that God exists? Well, there in Romans chapter 1, we're told why. It's because if there is a God, then it means that he has a claim on our lives. It means that he has rights of ownership over us, and we are accountable to him. But that brings us to another question. Well, which God, right? Like, what kind of God is he? Right? If, is he a God that we should be afraid of and, and avoid at all costs? Is he a cosmic killjoy, right, who doesn't want us to have any fun down here, trying to take away all our joy? And the answer would be no. Yes, he's a God of truth. Yes, he's the ultimate judge, but he's also a redeemer. He's also a loving God. He's a life-giving, joy-inducing, beautiful God. We see that in nature. We see it also in God's revelation of himself, which brings us to our next point, the evidence from revelation. Now, maybe you say, okay, look, I believe there's a creator. I believe there's some kind of God out there, but why should I believe it's this God, the God of the Bible? Well, think about it like this. If there is a God who created us, well, he created us for a purpose, probably, and he, he would create us, and he would want to communicate with us if he had a purpose for us so that we would know what that purpose is, and we'd be sure to do it. So if it would make sense, then, that God would reveal himself to us in a way beyond just the general revelation of what we can know from nature, and he'd give us some specific revelation about who he is and what his plan for us was. And if God was to communicate with us, let me ask you, what would you expect that communication to be like? Well, maybe you would say you'd expect it to be in some kind of written form. Why? So that there would be a record that would be passed on so we could make sure that it is set, that it isn't being changed all the time by every person who comes along, like in a game of telephone. Now, I would argue that the Bible has all the marks of what we would expect to see if God were trying to communicate with us. For example, the Bible is not just one book. It's actually a collection of 66 books written over the course of 1,600 years by 40 different authors, most of whom never met each other. It was written in three languages on three different continents. And yet all these different writings, like pieces of a puzzle, when they come together, they form one cohesive whole, one cohesive story. And this story tells us about who God is, what he is like, why he has created us, why the world is the way it is, and what God's plan is, what he's going to do in the future. The Bible contains hundreds of fulfilled prophecies, times when God said, before something happened, here's what's going to happen, and then it happened. Hundreds a few weeks ago, we looked at the topic of whether we can know that the Bible has not been changed. And we saw that throughout uh, history, we, as archaeology has ramped up over the last two to three hundred years, we've seen more and more proof that actually show us the Bible has not changed or been altered. Which again, if there is a God and he wanted to communicate with us, then it would be reasonable to assume that he would give us something and he would also protect it to make sure that it wasn't changed or altered. 
Now, here's the thing. I'm not telling you that you should believe in God because the Bible says that he exists. What I'm saying is that the Bible itself is so incredible that when you look at it, it serves as one of the fingerprints of God. It bears all the marks of what we would expect to be if God were to communicate with us. And that brings us to our final thing that I want to talk to you about today. Brings us back to where we started. The word became flesh. See, many people who doubt the existence of God have reassured themselves with the thought, look, if God exists and he wanted us to believe in him, well then I'm sure he would appear to us somehow and make himself known to us. Well, let me ask you, what if he has already done that? Because I believe that he has. The Gospel of John is one of four written accounts of Jesus' life. Eyewitness accounts that was written by people who were with him, who saw the things he did with their own eyes, who heard his words with their ears, and they wrote down what happened for other people to know. And of the four Gospels, John's Gospel, where we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John's Gospel takes the most philosophical approach to explaining not just who Jesus was and what he did, but why he did these things and what they mean for you and me. See, John doesn't just want us to understand what Jesus did. He wants us to understand why he did it and what it means for us. And here's how John begins his gospel in a very dramatic way. He says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now notice in your Bibles that that word, Word, is capitalized. Now, why is it capitalized? Because the word behind the word word, if you're tracking with me, right? The word behind the word word. In other words, in Greek, which is the original language that this was written in, the word word, which is capitalized, is the Greek word logos. Now, logos literally translates to word. That's why it says word in English. But it's more than that. And it doesn't always come through with a simple reading of the Bible. You need a little background. The reason it's capitalized is because that word, logos, the word word, was a Greek philosophical concept, particularly held by Stoics, which was very popular at this time. So the Greeks believed that behind the universe, there was an invisible force which drives the universe, a moral force and a set of laws which govern the universe. And they called that force behind everything, they called it the logos, the word. Now, John is saying this, hey, guys, you know that thing you believe in, the logos, that invisible force that's driving the universe, that moral force that's behind all the laws of physics and morality, that logos thing, that is God. That's God. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was God. But wait a second, which God is it, right? Because Greeks believed in lots of gods. Notice what he says, in the beginning. Have you ever heard those words before? Even if you've never read the Bible, you might know those words. They might sound familiar. Those are the very first words of the Bible. The book of Genesis, the Hebrew Bible, right? It begins with these words. In the beginning. And now John taps into that and he grabs a hold of that and he says, in the beginning. In other words, which God are we talking about? We're talking about the God of the Bible, the Hebrew God, the God of the Bible, the Logos, this invisible force behind the universe is God. And specifically, it's the God of the Bible. And then he drops the bomb in verse 14 and he says, and the word, the Logos, the force behind the universe, who is God, the God of the Bible, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What John is saying is that the person of Jesus Christ 
in the person of Jesus Christ, God has come to us and made himself known to us. Look what he says in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. If God were to come to us in person, in a, as a human being, what would we expect him to be like? Well, I think it's reasonable to assume that he would, if he was a man, he would, he would live a holy life. And maybe his words would probably be the most insightful, most encouraging, most piercing words that have ever been spoken out of a human mouth. And I think it's reasonable to expect that he would perform miracles, not only as a demonstration of his love, but as an attestation of who he is. Now let me ask you a question. Has there ever been anyone in history like that? Has there ever been anyone who claimed that he was God and he authenticated that claim by living a holy life and performing miracles and speaking words that were unarguably the most insightful, influential words ever spoken? You might argue that if God were to come to earth, it would change history. Nobody would ever forget that. It would be something that people would talk about and write books about and think about and sing about and talk about for years to come. They would probably take those words that he spoke. They would probably write them down. They would read them aloud. They would try to apply them to their lives and live them out. And of course, I'm talking about Jesus. God has appeared to us. He has done all of those things and more. And he tells us there in verse 14, the word God became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. John's saying, I saw it with my own eyes. He was full of grace and truth. He says in verse nine, the true light has come to everyone. It's come into the world. And he says, verse 10, he was in the world. The world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what if God came to earth as a person and people didn't believe in him? And of course, that's exactly what happened. There were a lot of people who saw him, met him in person, and they did not receive him. In fact, they went further than that. They actually killed him. How is that even possible, you might ask? Well, it's possible in the same way that people today have evidence that God exists and many still refuse to believe in him. Now, I asked the question earlier, why hasn't God given us one slam dunk proof that just ends the whole conversation and shows us that God exists and who he is? Well, because at the end of the day, it requires faith. God wants us to have faith, not blind faith. It's not blind faith. It's faith that's based on evidence, but it still requires faith. It requires a step on your part to trust and believe. You know, even people who met Jesus face to face, even people who saw him risen from the dead, they still had to make a choice to believe or not to believe, to say, I will surrender, or I will not surrender. And, and if they don't surrender, why? Because they said, they actually said this at the time of Jesus, we do not want that man to rule over us. In other words, people still do that. They say, no, I wanna call the shots. I don't want him to rule over me. And the irony of it is this, the choice to push God away doesn't really lead to freedom. It leads to bondage and sorrow both now and forever. And I'll finish with this, verse 12. Look at the, what it says. To all who did receive him he, and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This promise is still true for you today. God has come to us. God has revealed himself to us, made himself known in the person of Jesus. If you receive him 
and what he did for you in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, he will give you the right to be called a child of God. That's the purpose for which you were created, to be united with him and be embraced by him. And it begins now and it continues for eternity. As we go from here today, I want to encourage you to be intentional and recognize all of the fingerprints of God that are all around you. And may we respond to him in faith with thankful hearts for all that he's done. Amen? Lord, as we consider your works uh, this morning, as we consider all the things which point to your existence, Lord, we recognize that it still requires faith on our parts. And so, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, Lord, open our hearts that we might believe, that we might see, that we might know. And Lord, help us to have faith to believe. I pray for anyone here today who says, you know, I've been kind of on the fence. I've been kind of wavering. I've been kind of holding back. Lord, I pray that today would be the day where they put down their yes and say, I'm all in. I, I will trust in this God. I will look into the evidence. I will recognize the fingerprints of God all around me, and I will put my faith in him. Lord, I, I pray for uh, us all this week that as we go about, Lord, this, this life that we live, Lord, that we would see your fingerprints all around us and we give you glory and honor and praise. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com.